Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Bree Jenkins, full-time MBA 2019, and our guest, Nora Silver. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Bree, you've been on the podcast before, but you know, for any new listeners, can you introduce yourself and then introduce our guest? Yes, of course. So yeah, I graduated in 2019, last year from Haas, and I was a student in two of Nora's classes, actually. Nora Silver is a professor and the faculty director of the Center for Social Sector Leadership at Haas, and an all-around amazing serial entrepreneur, and the way that she's created and founded different programs. I took a class called Large Scale Social Change with Nora, and first of all, I couldn't believe this was even a class at business school, and not in public policy school, for example. And this class was really incredible. I started thinking about what kind of social change I wanted to make after Haas and felt really compelled to jump in recently after the murder of George Floyd. Other Haasies and I started this WhatsApp channel because a lot of us were starting to have race conversations at work and sharing all these different resources. And we were inspired by classes like Nora's and also other courses at Haas like Dialogues on a Race which was created by some Hasis who graduated in 2018, Liz Koenig and Om Chitale. And so because so many of us were starting these small versions of social change around racial equity in our workplaces, I thought, oh, I need to talk to Nora. She's so invested in this work. She's been doing this for many years. And I'm curious about how some of the learnings and lessons from that class play out when you go into the job market and into these different companies or academic institutions. So that is a little bit of background around this conversation. And Nora, if you'd like to share any more about your background and yourself, please. Yeah, Nora, I mean, how did you get into this area? I see that your bachelor's was in education in Spanish. Right. Right. How, how, How do we go from there to today? Oh my God, that's such a lot. This podcast will be forever. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I got a BA in Spanish and education because I wanted to teach in the inner city in Washington, D.C. And that was definitely a formative experience for me. But I think my journey started before that, growing up in the middle of um, West Philadelphia, in an area that was very mixed. We were all, you know, not, not terribly poor, but just really making it and people from lots of different backgrounds. Mm. And then when I was nine, we moved to an area that was a very upper class, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, community that was a shock for me. And, And I think that really informs my understanding of culture and social change, and particularly people from different backgrounds, either understanding each other or not. And I think I'm at heart very action-oriented. So something like social movements really appealed to me. And I created the course after I'd been at Haas a number of years. And I, I, I will say I'm really, I'm very proud to work at Haas in Berkeley. You know, I, I talk to some of my, my colleagues or friends and they're saying, well, my company doesn't know if they're going to make any statement now around Black Lives Matter. And, and I think I'm very proud to work at a place that does. But I had been teaching in Haas for a number of years, and I heard from students from all programs, undergrads and grads, that they really wanted to make a difference in the world. And an aha moment for me was, 
you know, I think we don't teach that. I think mm. we teach how to manage in an organization, but I don't think we really teach how change happens in the world, not just within an organization, but in the world. Right. And then in fact, lots of change happens outside of institutions. So it was that that led me to create the large scale social change course. And in terms of the question that Bree, you asked right now, this is the hardest question for me. The question of how do you do this within a company, especially if you're in a more junior position. So I need to think back about that. And I hope this is a discussion because I have a lot to learn about within a company, how do you do this? Hmm. Yeah, and piggybacking on something Nora just said of being grateful for Haas and having these conversations available and also being very aware about the problems in terms of diversity, especially the number of black students at Haas. That was a huge driver for my friends and social groups to really start having these conversations about race. How do we change things from a systems level? And I think that's really informed how we've thought about it in our workplaces as well. Just seeing that it's possible. <laughs> I think seeing that within a year, huge changes can be made. And then there are now most of my friends who are out in the world after Haas feel that obligation to talk about it. And I think some of that stems from wanting to be authentic to ourselves. Haas has this whole thing about meaningful work and I wouldn't say brainwashes, but maybe that's a good word of that you can make an impact and that you can work in something that you care deeply about and can change things. And so that, that spirit of authenticity, I think is one of the, the starting points of the journey about talking about race at work and yeah, Nora, what, what do you think about that authenticity aspect and what that looks like? I think that's critical. I think, you know, we can talk about, and we will, these strategies and tactics at work, but the greatest tool you have at work is you and who you are. And that's always available to you. And I think we underestimate that. We underestimate the power of our own selves and bringing ourselves fully to what we're doing. And for me, I've been, I watched a father who had to go to work doing something he hated and learned early on the power of doing something you love. And I've been very, very lucky in my career to do things that I love. And I also learned from him the power of, of speaking up for yourself. And so that is really kind of near and dear to me, the authenticity. I'm a psychologist by training. So I'm, I'm always going to look from the viewpoint of the person and, and work is valuable and we all do it. And you know, there's some parts of it we love, there's some parts of it we hate and a lot in between. But the more we relinquish ourselves when we walk in the door at work, the more we lose, I think, in life. And so that's a general statement. And, and the things I feel bad about in work are the, th the times that I was not authentic. The times I didn't take a risk, the times I was too fearful and brief. We shared one of those in, in our class. So there was a time in the large scale social change class when I decided to show, contrary to everything I've been told, it was a 36 minute video. And I knew people would be like, oh God, she's showing 36 minutes. What is this about? But it was a video that was about the civil rights movement. And I thought it was really important that people see what happened not just hear about it in a sanitized way by reading in a book, but really see the violence and, and the work that was done. And I knew it was hard to watch. 
It was very hard to watch. But I decided to show it because I thought it was that important. Um, why don't you start? Yeah. So my, from my perspective, when that video was shown, I was the only Black person in the class. I mean, there are amazing allies and advocates and activists, honestly, in the class. But I was the only Black person in the class. And I remember being so viscerally moved by the, the images I was seeing. I just started crying. And... You see people getting hosed, you see people getting uh, attacked by dogs, and, and it was very violent. That is what happens as people walk down the streets trying to protest to get equal rights, to get recognition, to get rights that they deserved as being integral part of this country. Those attacks by the state by individuals, by, I mean, it was just really, really horrible. And I, yeah, I was crying in the class and I think I was just really tuned into it. And then at some point I started looking around and there were faces of people looking sad or being upset, but no one else was crying. And I just felt like, does anyone, does anyone feel this? It felt so personal to me. And I think I started thinking about maybe people are not likely to cry or don't want to be embarrassed in public or whatever it is. But I couldn't shake that feeling of being very alone in that moment and that I was experiencing this pain alone. And I know Nora also had. had Okay, so at the same time, I'm watching it as the instructor and I'm watching the class to make sure kind of people are okay or, you know, tuned in actually. I was concerned about people not being engaged enough. Um, and it was the, I think it was the fourth year I was teaching the class and every year I teach it, I have a hard time holding back tears when I watch it. It's very emotional for me. And I, I kind of hid behind the being a teacher and held back those tears and didn't show them. And that was not authentic. And that meant at the end of the day that Brie felt more alone because I didn't bring myself fully out there. And that was a painful lesson for me. And I think that's something that I've also wondered about at work. And I'm glad that you shared how it affected you because I think without leaders sharing how things are affecting them or touching them in some way, then you can't help but to believe that People either don't care or don't know. Mm. Unless someone tells you explicitly, this is what we care about, this is what we're doing about it, this is our priority, how can you be expected to understand or, or believe anything to the contrary when they are still talking? And I remember, I think you asked, like, do, do you want to talk or stay a little bit after? And I just, at that moment, I just couldn't <laughs> um, do any, feel anything else. I was just like, okay, I just have to get out of here. What if, you know, what if I had been able to show more emotion and you had, and maybe it would have turned the conversation in the class, right? Right. Maybe it would have allowed other people to key in because we would have modeled the way rather than you sitting there alone feeling that, you know, and, that, and that's why authenticity is so important because we only have one life and it's important to us to be authentic, but it's also important because it brings forth authenticity from other people. 
Mm-hmm. And if you want, if you want to open up a conversation, if you want to have some change, you've got to take the first step. You can't ask other people to do it. You've got to take it too, or take it with people. Mm-hmm. And in the in the spirit of kind of taking things with people, I wonder. And this is something that all of my friends are chatting about, or just in conversations. It's like, but I'm afraid, <laughs> right? Uh, I want to bring it. Be authentic. I want to bring my full self to work. I am afraid of what will happen? What are the repercussions? Um, what if I get fired? Honestly, I mean, that's a big one. I'm new to the company. I don't want to be seen as a troublemaker trying to start this kind of conversation. Uh, I have a, a friend who works at a VC and she is like the only black person at her firm, very close community. They have 10 to 15 people. It's very small. And she's always felt very supported there. And then right after George Floyd was killed. We were on the phone, I think, a Friday. So, yeah, we were still at work. <laughs> but we're both crying half the morning just saying mostly that no one at her job had said anything. And now she felt so afraid to be the one to speak up. And there was a lot of anxiety about being that only person of color to speak up. No one else was going to. But also she could not go back into another call and hear someone ask her, how are you without either bursting into tears or just completely shutting down. So I'm I'm curious about, about that of you get to that point of wanting to be authentic and you know what, there's so many fears and worry. I guess I want to respond to that both in terms of the idea of fear and the idea of risk because the risks are real. You could get fired. You could get shunned, you could get censured, you could be ridiculed, you know, all of those things absolutely can happen. And so it involves in some way conquering fear or acting. What's courage and is, is not, not having fear, but acting in the face of fear and taking some risks. And I think in some ways it's, again, starting with you, acknowledging that the fears are real, the risk is real. I think there's something to be said for how do you generally deal with risk and fear? You know, we all tend to have a a general operating style that we have or a default. You know, some of us kind of back off and, and go into ourselves and try to play it safe because it's just too terrifying to take action. Others, and I would put myself in this category as when I'm, when I'm afraid or when there's a risk, I move forward because I'm better off in action than in sitting there in fear. I'm not very good and not acting. And that has its downsides too. So not, one is not better than the other, but kind of what is your general response? And for me, I remember the things that I didn't do. And those are the ones that are painful. You know, like the example from the class we had together, Brie, those are painful. The things that I've done and made mistakes and I've made many, they're not as painful for me. They, they just don't ring as hard. And I think I've been fortified by a couple of things. One was from my family. I mentioned that when I was nine, we moved to a very upper class community. I'm Jewish. My family was poor. My grandparents were immigrants. And so we were really the first different people who moved into this community. And I was accused of stealing people's horses because I was the only dark haired child around, you know, things like that. And I remember a dinnertime conversation where my mother asked my father that he had been in the army And he was, and I may get these titles wrong, but he went in as a private and then he'd get promoted 
sergeant and then he'd be demoted to corporal and then he'd go back and forth and my mother never understood what rank he was and so I asked him what was that about what happened and and he said that he kept being called excuse me trigger alert a WAP which is a derogatory term for somebody who's Italian and he would get into fights again he looked Italian very very dark black hair and um I said, but you weren't Italian. Why did you fight? And he said, because if they'll call you a WAP, they'll call you a kike, they'll call you an N-word, they'll call you something awful, and you have to stand up and fight every single time. And that certainly has informed how I look at speaking up. One of my friends works at an academic institution in higher education, and she is brand new, right? She's already a little bit nervous about just being in the position. I'm, I'm new to this. I've actually never done this before. I've just gotten my MBA, so I'm kind of close to the age of these other people who are in this MBA program, and I'm doing a leadership development program. And the person who was my boss, who was, my, who was a professor, he doesn't, doesn't get it. Right. And... I don't want to push too hard for, again, that, those reasons of fear. What if I get fired? Or what if people just don't want to work with me? But what do I have influence over? And what can I do? What is a small thing I can do? What is the thing that you can do, even if the system is against you? And right now she's decided, okay, let me talk to my boss, who's a professor on a class on leadership. They do not say the word race once in this class. This is an MBA class <laughs> on leadership. So how I, I could go, you know, aggressively and try to figure out why um, and how, or I can ask questions. She's kind of figuring out what is her place. She decided I'm going to ask questions and see where this is coming from. Why not? Why, is, why isn't that word just included or just the differences in how leadership looks from a race perspective in her her boss said, well, you know, then if I, I would have to add gender, I would have to add uh, other elements of identity into this class. If this changes the, the syllabus in some way, maybe people will say, how come there's only one class on race and not multiple classes on race? So there's that kind of fear of the repercussions of what if students are now angry and upset that I didn't spend more time on it or that I didn't talk about their specific identity or that right, right. And those, those are definitely considerations. And I would challenge and as she did kind of challenge this person to think about what is the cost of not doing anything. It's, it's very easy to see the cost of taking action. You know, if I say an external statement, if I put this in my syllabus, then these are all the X, Y, Z repercussions. And you're currently living in a world where there are repercussions, right? It's exactly. not, you're already having a, a lot of costs and maybe this will actually be a benefit. And how might those benefits outweigh the costs that you're seeing? And again, she didn't want to push too hard. She's just entering this conversation. She understands her boss is very new to this conversation. And she ended up having it and just like waiting, seeing where it went next. And 
he told her, like, I don't know if, if we can do this, right? I have all these fears. I don't know if this can even be done. And she just found out um, this week that he's now talking to other administration and faculty about how do they include this overall in the curriculum. I think it's really important to have that space of people who can talk to you about those things and share with you and make you feel in a lot of ways that you're not alone, especially when there is fear and uncertainty. I know when I was at Haas, all the time we had students visiting and one student, she was a prospective Black student, and she's like, so what is the deal here? Like, what is going on here? I can see that there are not a lot of Black kids at this school. How do you feel? Do you feel like you belong? Because once you take a glance at all of the different structures in place or who is here, who is not here, who has a seat at the table, you're curious. Oh, do I belong here? You have people who are really, I mean, honestly could go other places. They have other options. (laughs) Talented Mm -hmm. people, if you get into Haas, you can likely get into all kinds of other schools that you want to go to. You end up choosing a place that makes you feel like you belong and a place that makes you feel like you I don't have to live in that fear of if I speak up, am I representative of every single person who may happen to look like me? And wanting to be just another student sometimes and not have a second job of recruiting other students who look like you. And Yeah, it's such an undue burden. It's such an undue burden you carry um, as a single Black person in the workplace or in the class at Haas. And I think... I think building community is part of the answer here. I think, I think a lot of people who come to Haas are natural bridgers. People who, like my own background is, I've lived in lots of different ethnic communities that are not my own. I've lived in all Black communities. I've lived in all Latino communities. And, and I tend to operate between spaces like social enterprise between for-profit. I I tend to go in those places. And I think a lot of people at Haas are bridgers in some way. It may not be about race. It may not be about gender, but it may be about kind of old world or home country and new world. It may be um, rural and urban. You know, there are lots of ways to bridge communities. I mean, I hope that part of the burden gets on all of us to actively take that role. Yeah. So that gets lifted off the shoulders of the people on whom obviously it is always put. But I I think the rest of us need to accept that burden and the, the sense of agency and that we have a choice to change it. And if we don't do anything, we're complicit. Why'd you choose Haas? Yes. I had an interesting journey to Haas. My partner and I were like, let's move to California. As I said, I worked at Disney and I was like, I could work here forever. And if I'm going to move somewhere, if we're going to be together, I want to see if I can work in social impact and I want to see what, what change I can make. So I was looking at schools that had good social impact programs in California. We had visited you know, mountains and oceans. Like, how do I move to California first? And once we had decided California, I was like, I'm, I'm clearly going to Stanford. <laughs> um, oh, I, okay. 
Yeah, Stanford, it's a great MBA program. They have this Center for Social Innovation. I can't wait to go there. It's really exciting. And I started talking to someone. Uh, I had a friend at Disney who had gone to Stanford. And so she was like, let me connect you also with my friend who actually went to Stanford undergrad, but went to Haas. And she can tell you a little bit about the social impact program there if you're curious. Never bad to learn more about other places. And I've heard of Berkeley, you know, it's a great school. So (laughs) I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to her. And her name is Victoria Whitaker. She was actually a Haas student ambassador. I didn't know this at the time. So she had some yeah, Victoria. strategy here. But also is a black woman. Really amazing. I just love her. And we just clicked so instantly. And she wasn't pushing me to go to Haas. She was just like, this is my experience at Haas. I really enjoyed it. Come visit if you'd like. And we'll meet up. So I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm coming to California anyway. Might as well. And I visited Haas first before I visited Stanford. And my visit to Haas was amazing. I mean, people were so willing to answer any question, to help. I I like what you said about being a bridge, Nora. It's like whatever you previously did to where you want to go. And so where do you want to go? What do you want to do? How can I support you in your journey? And it was weird. I was like, why are these people who really have no stake in my life (laughs) (laughs) wanting to be nice and helpful and the social impact program sounded great I'd heard about all these different classes this is exciting I actually didn't want to leave I had to leave halfway through the day because I had to get to Stanford for my appointment and as fate would have it my my class tour got canceled as I was on the way down to Palo Alto and so this is the days pre-COVID when there used to be traffic and it already (laughs) takes so long to get from Berkeley to Palo Alto And then my class was canceled. And so I was like, I'm just going to go to the business school and try to talk to someone. And when I got there, I noticed that the admissions person wasn't even in the meeting place. So it was a bunch of students who all knew that the tour was canceled, but we were like, maybe they'll just come to the meeting place and talk to us about something. And so we were all gathered there and no one comes. Me and two other people were like, do you want to just go to admissions ourselves and try to just talk to someone? So we went over there and started talking to the admissions directors and they were very nice and friendly. And we were like, can we talk to any student ambassadors or anything like that? They're like, just go to the courtyard, talk to anyone. And I was intimidated by that. And also kind of really turned off (laughs) at Haas. If I asked the other any students, then I would get a direct introduction. At the very least, they would come out into the courtyard and say like, hey, this is this person. Do you want to talk to them? But in this case, let's just go figure it out yourself. I really didn't want to do that and didn't know how to to do that (laughs) even. And so I was like, okay, actually, you know what? I'm going to go to the Center for Social Innovation. Go check it out and hear what they do. You know, this is Stanford. They changed the world. I was so excited. So I went there. I said, can I talk to anyone who works in the center? Can you tell me about the programs you offer, anything? And they said, we're by appointment only. You can check online. And I was just like really turned off in comparison. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think I have friends who go to Stanford and they've really enjoyed their time. Other people have had different experiences, but that was my experience and that really informed me. So after I got in, I thought about that a lot. Like, where do I want to be? Where did I feel like I was supported and belonged in some ways? And where did people treat me like I was 
a person before they knew if I was quote unquote good enough. And it felt like Haas was that place. And mm -hmm. it had been that way the whole time. Every time I talked to one person, they would connect me to two other people. And I did get that treatment at Stanford only after I was admitted. It really depends on you, your community, where you feel like you belong, what makes sense to you. And I couldn't turn off that initial feeling that I wasn't good enough just being myself. I, I'm so glad I asked you. I never knew that story and it's so compelling. I have two thoughts. One is it really maps to something I experienced when I came to Haas. I had taught undergrads and I had taught community college and I had taught middle school, but I had never taught MBAs. And so one of the things I did was I um, contacted my colleagues, my counterpart at Harvard and Duke and Stanford and all of these other schools. And most of them were very helpful. But we had a group then, I can't even remember the acronym for it, PSAG, Public Service Affinity Group. So it was people like me doing social impact at the business schools. And it was so young and new. There was, and there was one of us at each school. And it was only like the top 10 business schools that had anything. But we would visit each other. So every, I think it was every six months or every quarter, whatever it was, we would meet at one person's school or another. And the thing that was impactful for me was very similar, Brie, to your experience in that I noticed when I went to the other schools or the difference coming from Haas, at Haas, if you're walking behind somebody, like to go out to the courtyard or to go into a classroom, the person in front of you will hold the door for you. That happened at none of the other schools. Wow. And it was so consistent, so regular. And it, there's nothing as kind of symbolic as having the door slammed in your face, right? And, and so that really fit. I understand the feeling that you're describing from that small experience. And it also brings up for me, it's beyond community. I think there's, there's another variable here that we haven't talked about, and that's organizational culture. Mm -hmm. That there, there is a culture that, you know, when I came to Haas, I wanted to infuse Haas with a sense of activism and social impact because there was nothing. When I was hired, it was by student demand. I was interviewed by two students, a professor from Goldman, two professors from Haas, and the dean. And it was like, we need to do something because our students are demanding this. What should we do? Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and, so, and so when I came... I was really determined, this is not about me, this is not about a single course, this is not about people who go out to work in social impact only. That's, that's kind of our, our smallest circle, but there are concentric circles around that. And because it's Berkeley, and because I really believe that this generation of students really wants to make a difference in the world, let's try to infuse social impact into Haas, right? And I, I think, you know, this is like 15 years later, I think, and it, it's, it's tangible. You can feel it at Haas, no matter what anybody does. I don't care if you're working in whatever company, what, wherever you are. That's something that you, that you experience during your two years at Haas in one way or another. And I'm, I think that is part of our culture. And it's, one, it's only one of the things that makes me proud of Haas. But I think it's really, really important that that culture gets translated when new people come to Haas, you know, and sit on our classes and they get it. They absolutely feel that culture of, 
a meaningful difference in the world. It's not the change the world technology, great leader kind of thing of Stanford. I think it's different there. You know, they, they say change the world too, but it's a little different. And it's very, very much Berkeley, which is contrasted. My first job in life was teaching in an inner city uh, middle school in Washington, D.C. I think I was one of two whites. The students were 1,400 African-Americans and recent immigrants, students from Central America who didn't speak any English. The culture of the school was so punitive and so dismissive and so insulting. And that that was the message that the kids got. And it was in so many ways communicated from we had eight bodyguards in the hallways that would lock us in the classrooms. Right. I said, I want to take the students on a field trip. People looked at me like I was nuts. Why would you do that? Why, you know, why would you trust your kids to take them out in the community? Well, I took them out to something I thought I had scheduled at the Pan American building, which had an inside, like a jungle, uh, you know, an actual jungle inside the building, which I thought would be really, really interesting. And when we got there, I had made the appointments, all the arrangements, paid the money. Oh, they didn't have our reservation. Hmm. Right. And so we went to, to play around the Washington uh, Monument because it was open ground. These are middle schoolers, you know. Right. And, and I wanted to give them something that was fun and not this slap in the face they had just gotten. And when we came back and talked about, all right, what did you like best? What they like best? Seeing a tree, seeing trees. So culture, culture matters hugely. And we're all, wherever we work, we're talking a lot about the Haas culture, but you know, where you work, Bree, Sean, where you work, whoever is, might be listening, your companies have cultures and you know them. And you know them, especially if you're new to the company, because it's like air, you know, you, you first taste it and smell it. And after you're there for a while, it's no longer so clear to you, but you know it, especially if you're a young, younger alum, you know what the culture of your company is and everybody contributes to that. It's not something that's mandated from the top. And that's back to kind of the authenticity. The more you bring yourself in, the more you can influence that culture. And sometimes it's just by being a model. You know, I was teacher at Abraham Lincoln um, Junior High School in D.C. Was I remembered for anything? I taught, oh, hell no. You know, not, that wasn't it. But, but maybe, maybe I was remembered as, and, and when I left, the kids took up a collection and bought me a charm bracelet with a wishbone on it because I was moving to California. So maybe the fact that they had one person who they, they felt cared about them matter. So it's those little, you know, we talk about microaggressions. The other side of that is the many things that we do that can really make a difference in a culture because you don't know how you set off somebody else or a model for or teach somebody else or somebody sees it in you and starts to do it themselves. And, 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 and so the contribution to culture is really, really important. And I love that you, you talked about that, the little tiny things that really do make a huge difference. And I'll talk about two examples, like one at Haas, actually, during days at Haas, which is after we're admitted, but we haven't decided. During days at Haas, another girl who is Black, and there are not that many of us, I remember really clearly, we're having lunch, and she's like, are you coming here? And I was like, I really feel like this is a great place. From a cultural perspective, we had a diversity lunch, even though it didn't feel as diverse as it should have. The fact that a diversity lunch existed where people were talking about this 
felt like they're thinking about this. There was an entry point. She said, if you come, I'll come. And there is this, like the little tiny things that you have no idea how they're going to make an impact. And honestly, if you're an admissions director, there's no way you're going to know that, that those little things might happen of two people get together, whatever it is. And when our whole class was together, still not that many of us, we now at least had a community where we had enough power where we could make change. We were noticing that the class beneath us had six black people. We were really pissed, obviously. Because <laughs> <And laughs> yeah. we had worked really hard. We were calling people, we were emailing people, we were like telling we were doing everything that we could. And we realized we can't no one, two, few people can do this. This is a systems issue. These are the things you need to consider from a systemic standpoint. We needed the energy of people who were like, how can I think about this from my organization being in consortium, which this organization's uh, to increase the number of underrepresented minorities in business. How do I think about it from my organization or race inclusion initiative? And how do we go to the administration with a systemic plan? And where do we each fit in here? Yeah. Where do we each have a role and as I've talked to my friends at, at their jobs, they're, they're wondering that. They're curious. Like, where is my role here? Right. This is a question for you, Nora, because, you know, in your research on large-scale social movements, and, and as we're having this conversation, how does the perception of time play into all of this? And I ask this because, on one hand, there is a huge sense of urgency, right? But then... On the other hand, there is the benefit of patience, right? Like, how does time play into this? That's such a great question, Sean. And thank you. That's that's really a terrific question. And so I have two thoughts about it. That both the sense of urgency and patience are both required for social movements or large-scale social change. It's not an either-or. This is this is not, you know, the black or white. This is this is the gray area. And it plays out in a couple of different ways. The first way that occurs to me is, you know, in the, in the large-scale social change class, it was about what are the different levers you have to create change, like a financial lever, like you could boycott or you can incentivize, right? Or right. communications lever, how you talk about something or how you name something. Um, so we talk about those different levers, but here's the reality. If you look at about 200 different social movements over time and around the world, one of the takeaways is that if you're a strategist, which you know most MBAs, of course, are, you can't create. You can't just go in and decide with a master strategy to create a large change, like the Supreme Court ruling on LGBTQ rights in the workplace or uh, marriage equality, or you know, pick your pick your issue. It didn't just happen because somebody decided, okay, I'm going to do this. Mm. It takes time. And, and over years, it used to take decades and decades, if not hundreds of years. Think about slavery. Okay. It took hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you look, there's some, there's some wonderful stuff online. There's a timeline that shows how long it took different social movements to pop. And, mm. and it's taking less and less time. You think about, about marriage equality, it was less than a decade. Okay. So time looks different over time, right? But the other thing is that the most important thing you can do is be ready 
when something happens. And so journalists know this really, really well. You can't make something happen, but you can be prepared for when a moment happens. Hmm. And it may not be the first moment. I mean, we have George Floyd, who was the what? How many numbers black man that was killed by the police, right? Hundreds and hundreds came before. Why did it spark now? Or Rosa Parks was not the first person who refused to get to get up from her seat on the bus. In fact, she was the third. They were waiting for the right person to mobilize, right? So you need to be ready. And being ready means like kind of like a muscle, social change, any kind of change, even within a company. I'll take it within a company. So you take the risk and you take the chance of saying small things, right? And gaining one ally or a small group of allies. And you start to build, you build your muscle of speaking out and testing it in ways that are effective and mm -hmm. testing, making a change over here that might be, I don't know, the kind of food in the cafeteria, right. you know, the parking lot, whatever it is, but you're building a muscle and you're building your muscle and you're gaining momentum and you're gaining your skills and you're gaining your allies so that when something happens, you're ready, you're ready to move then's the sense of urgency. And before that, you have to have the patience, right, to build this muscle, to build your allies, to build your change mechanisms. So you have to have patience on the early end and a really leap to a sense of urgency when you get that opportunity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it just brings me back to that Bill Gates quote that he often quotes, how people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and underestimate what they can accomplish in 10. And you just made that message a lot more clear for me in that in the short term, we need to be taking a lot of small steps, right? And, and then it will compound to, to a large effect ultimately. And, and sometimes we get so paralyzed with fear because we we think that we need to do something drastic like tonight, you know, and, and that's, that's why some of these uh, micro movements come and go because people are just like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to bang it out tonight. You know, <laughs> just, just like a, like a last minute paper or something and, and, and hope this is all done by tomorrow, but that's not how social change happens. So. It's not how lasting social change happens, mm. right? It, you're moving a boulder. You're moving a whole world. And, and if you want it to really last, you've got to build some scaffolding under it to hold that so it doesn't just fall back on you. Right. I think that's why I was so excited about different classes like Dialogues on Race, you know, of being something that's internal, something that's small, something that could have potential, but also needs to, in a lot of ways, be activated in, in the right moment. And right now... You have employers coming to you who are saying, I want to talk about inclusive interviewing and asking for that and being ready for, for that. But it's only happening because we have employee resource groups who have started to educate and think about things. We have people who might be experts and, and available to talk about these things. You know, consultants, even in diversity and inclusion, who can come and tell you about very effective ways you can do this. Um, and people who have already started reflecting in, in the quiet, I would say, in the quiet moments. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's ever really been real quiet moments, right? It's always surging, especially when it comes to, uh, unfortunately, Black people being killed by the police. And 
each one of those sparks have made some, I think, incremental shifts toward being able to have companies speak out so openly. And especially in this moment where everyone is at home and reflecting and can't really meet to grieve with one another in their own groups. So it comes out at work. Right. And to remember also that while you're building that muscle inside and people are, are able to help people with you know inclusive interviewing and everything else, there's a world that's going to push change. And no company and no individual has complete control over that. And we're in a moment of time. So if you're sitting and thinking, oh, it's scary, you know, I'm afraid to take this risk, and it really is a risk if I bring up this conversation, it's a risk not to at this point. Because you have a value to add right now, an important value to add, and you're, you can kind of ride the wave of, of the world that's coming crashing down on companies if they don't do anything. So it's not just your energy. It's the, it's the energy that you're riding from outside. And I, I remember, Nora, I think we started talking about this, of what happened at uh, Packard with a small group of people. So I would love for you to share that story of kind of what a small group of people, since we were talking about community, being in community, needing to have other people kind of in this fight with you uh, so that you can get things done. What, ha- what happened there? So um, David and Lucille Packard Foundation is one of the largest foundations um, in the country. It funds internationally. And from Haas, we have seven fellows that go there to work. And so that's where my information comes from. And they work on conservation science, reproductive health, children, families, and communities. And the Packard Foundation is a family foundation. It's been, it's been doing in many ways, bold things. You know, they, they fund abortion, for instance. There aren't many foundations that fund that. But it, it's been a fairly homogeneous organization. And the fellows, for instance, stand out by being a very, very heterogeneous group, almost all people, people of color. And they've been pushing and pushing. And in fairness, the, 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 some of the senior leaders within Packard are saying, we need to do more, we need to do better. And there have been conversations, very reflective you know, conversations for a number of years now. And, you know, some has changed, but it's been limited. And the foundation world as a whole, not just Packard, is is fairly risk averse and fairly old school in many ways. And three people within the foundation decided enough. And they wrote a letter they vetted it with various, there's a people of color affinity group, other affinity groups, and these are not senior leaders in the foundation. I want to make this really clear. They may be a program officer, a program assistant. These are not the senior leaders. And they wrote a letter of demands, which they presented to the board of trustees. And the board members, although legally they're required to be open by law, 501c3s are, but you know they're, they're in a boardroom, nobody... You know, it was going to storm Los Altos for the boardroom. But in this day and age, they, they, they live streamed the board meeting. And so everybody at Packard could hear it or beyond, I guess, if they wanted. But everybody at Packard could hear it. And these three, they were all women, presented their list of demands and the reasoning for it to the board of trustees. And the board of trustees, you know, turned around and said things like, you know, this is not our lived experience. You know, you're educating us. And they on the spot made a change, for instance, one of their programs is called Population and Reproductive Health. 
Well, think about the word population. In colonial societies, population control, population limit, right? And so the head of that program got up and said, you know, can we get rid of the population? It has a terrible, terrible meaning to many people in this world. So it was dropped on the spot. And, and, and it was three people who decided enough, enough. And I, I haven't spoken to that or asked them directly this question, but I have to believe that COVID, I have to believe the, the killing of George Floyd, that all of these motivated them to act in a time when the trustees would be more open to it because they saw it around the world and that these people had the courage to step forward and to take this position. And I think it's something like 120 employees roughly at the foundation and over a hundred signed the petition. Hmm. Okay. So I don't want to say this came from nowhere. It didn't, it didn't, but it really burst onto the scene in a huge, huge way. And the power of a few people to mobilize and get something done. I think that's an important message for, for our Haas alumni and Haas students to really stand up and be leaders, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the formal position. You become a leader by doing something that leads. Yeah. And one thing I think we haven't touched on as much in talking about this work and doing and trying to make a, a change, especially in terms of uh, diversity and in ter- terms of conversations about race and Black people in companies specifically, is the frustration <laughs> that's going to come along the way whenever you're leading any kind of social movement. And especially if your company is not in the, in the business of diversity inclusion and, and making these kind of changes. So the frustration that arises for, again, this group of my friends, other Hassies who are like, I went into work and I wanted to start the conversation. And my company said, this is a priority, right? Diversity is a priority. We want to make this part of everything that we do. And when I suggested, how can we think about bringing in people for a safe space conversation? My company said, well, thinking about time and competing priorities that we have, which actually doesn't doesn't really work right now. And especially being a junior person at a, at a company, or at least a new person, even if you have a, a, a fair amount of power since you graduated with an MBA degree, it, being a new person and hearing that, you know, that actually this is a competing priority, hearing this is going to take money. And right now during COVID, we don't have any resources to devote to this or seeing that only people who have been in the, who have always been in the conversation are there. So people who may be the the people who are not as high level position, they could be secretaries, they could be assistants. Those are the people who are always opting in or even if, and, and there are a huge group of people who are never opting in. And so that frustration also continues to build as we try to make these changes and I have personally experienced that and being disappointed with my team for not showing up to a a meeting where we were going to talk about issues on race that we all agreed were important. (laughs) We all said this 
was important to us. We took an anonymous poll even to inset this. And so the frustration I felt in having put together a conversation and having very thoughtfully made sure that it was planned out weeks in advance and everyone could who could make it would make it and making sure that our leader was also on on board with this and then seeing the the participation rate being you know seven people out of 30 and I think that feeling almost almost felt like what's the point are people not going to engage in this I thought we said that we cared about this and one thing that I did with the urging, actually, of Nora, <laughs> um, my manager also, who is an amazing advocate, but with Nora as well, was to express my feelings of frustration and hurt to our leader, to let them know how this experience affected me and not to necessarily blame anyone, but to start the conversation by saying, you know, this experience of planning this out and thinking about this and being really excited and seeing the turnout made me feel like this is not a priority. And I have heard from the executives that this is a priority. So I would love to talk to you about this more. And my leader was really gracious and, and spoke with me. Nora doesn't know this. <laughs> uh, we, we talked and she, she said, thank you for your feedback. And she said, at this level, I usually don't receive a lot of feedback. People don't tell me directly what, how, how they're feeling or what's going on. And these are the things that I'm thinking that we can do next so that everyone on the team is involved. And I'd love to hear also like what you think. And it felt very much like a partnership. But I, I not, would have not done that had it not been for advocacy and support of my community including including people like Nora, to say that speaking up and sharing your experience is, is worthwhile and potentially risky. And I will, you know, I will review to help you with the, with the language and the words. And I hope it, I hope it makes a change and I hope it makes a difference. And for me, it has felt like it, it did. I'm so delighted. You know, I think it's the psychologist in me, Bree, that is reminded of there's going to be frustration. You know that, right? You're going to have other, other very, very frustrating experiences. This is not the last one. And hurtful experiences. But the difference between hurt and trauma is that in trauma, you have no sense of agency. You are helpless and you can do nothing. And so you get yourself out of it being traumatic to the extent that you take some action or, or have some agency and have some, decide a place for yourself, make a choice. doesn't mean you always have to, to, to speak up, but you have to do something so you don't disappear. That's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so proud of you. Good for you. Good for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was hard too. I... I definitely have, I feel more safe to speak up in some ways, I think just because of support. And when we, I first wrote my kind of my, my message and my letter, I got some feedback, like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to send this out? Like the, you know, what if, wow. what if, I mean, that's something that 
also, you know, people who are listening might hear from their friends, right? You might hear that, like, are you sure this can put you at risk? And that's why I think it's important. It is, I mean, it's important to hear that, to know your risks before you walk into something and, and didn't know what the options were. And it's important to have your support group who either can help you figure out, like, what is the most effective way to communicate this with the individual you're speaking to, or uh, to even push you if you need a little bit more of a, of a push to, to speak up. Because as, as you said, Nora, like there is a risk in not speaking up as well. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think the biggest risk would be that the same thing would either repeat itself or the conversation would not have continued at all. In which case, it would not only affect me personally, it would affect any other new person coming into my organization. This has been so enlightening. I'm just <laughs> sitting here listening and just, just thinking so many things to even my my past. Just, you know, and I want to share this because I'm reminded that at times of fear, you sometimes have to think back and I think the times that you did overcome fear, right? Where you did take action, that we've all done this. We've all overcome fear. That's that's how we are where we are today. And it, like I totally forgot that that in college, you know, there was an incident, the racial incident, where it um, I was on the phone with my friend. She was black, and I guess some someone was they were drunk. It was middle of the night. Was um, was throwing racial slurs at her, and she called me. She was pretty upset, and it escalated pretty quickly. And the cops came, and I happened to know this other group of people as well that you know were the perpetrators, and they were like really close friends with my girlfriend at the time, and there was this huge conflict. Right, there actually was no conflict, but you know, in my head. It seemed like there, there was this conflict. It's like, well, do I stand by my girlfriend or friends, or do I stand by my friend? And 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 I realized that it's neither that. It's about standing up for what's right, you know. And you'll start to realize that when you think that there's conflict, when you think that you're afraid because there's this imaginary conflict, there isn't. You, you do what's right. Um, that's what's most important. And so, so yeah, you know, I documented everything that I heard on the phone and ended up um, being used in court. Uh, It was, it was really important. Yeah. Wow. For you. I, I appreciate that you did that, John, and also that you brought up that story because I think there is something in here also about in terms of, you know, morality or right and that being associated with what the incident versus the person. Mm. This is something that I think a lot about. I worked at as head of operations for an elementary school. And in thinking about the environment we wanted to create for the students, we thought a lot about the terms that people use with one another, right? You're a good student, you're a good kid, you're a bad kid. That kid is bad. Not that your work is not meeting my expectations. Like, how do we work on this together so that this is better? But you're, you are just bad. <laughs> and, or, you know, even that your action of hitting another student 
that hurt them, that action is not, you know, it's, it's, it's a painful action to do to another person. Instead, that kid is bad. We should suspend them, expel them, get rid of them. And that it's, it's funny because we have this whole concept of cancel culture and as if it's something new and it's not <laughs> anything that, you know, we, we've decided who does and do, does not belong in so many different ways in so many different places throughout history. And, and unfortunately, that includes schools and young kids, especially black kids and black and brown kids being the ones who are now just excluded completely and are not thought about for their actions. And like, how do we help think about what is the root of this action or how we can in, you know, improve how the student reacts into difficult situations instead where we label the kid or we label the person. So even with your uh, girlfriend's friends who, I, I don't know them at all. <laughs> um, I would imagine they're not bad people because I imagine most people are not bad or good people necessarily. They have, they do things that are not right mm-hmm. and are not what is expected and are hurtful really. And that's really the, like, how do we talk to them about actions that might be hurtful to other people without calling people out by, by this name, because we know that by calling someone or labeling someone, they shut down. And there's a big shutdown feature. If someone tells me I'm a bad, whatever number of things, wife, partner, (laughs) sister, daughter, I'm like, I just think, start thinking about all the reasons why I'm not. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. And because that's what I also felt at the time. I mean, <laughs> this is all coming back now. This is so long ago, but, you know, I was going through and, and I remember receiving, you know, threats. And I also agree that I, I don't believe that human beings are inherently evil, right? Or bad. It's that they, are brought up a certain way with certain biases that they don't even realize. And instead of labeling them, we need to teach them. We need to re-educate them, uneducate and re-educate them. I just like to jump in here too, that, you know, be a behavior does not make a person. Mm-hmm. We've all done things that we're not proud of and we wouldn't want to be labeled just that kind of person. But the other, the other thing that occurs to me is if you flip the coin from doing something bad, there's a lot of research on what makes heroes, like what made people, you know, rescue people in World War II from concentration camps and what made people go in and rescue people in the floods and, you know, in New Orleans and all this research. And I wish I could remember the particular study I saw, but I, it was representative of others. And it was, it was not that they were different in kind. It wasn't who they were as a person, right? It wasn't that they were better or more right than anybody else. It was that they responded to the circumstances and what was called for at the time. That mm. that's what heroism is. And if we think of that in terms of what we've been talking about, like speaking up at work, you know, it's an heroic act. It's what the times call for. It's what the, what the pressure is to do the right thing in the right moment. And it, it seems that ordinary people have that ability given the right set of circumstances. So we're all able to be heroic when we're called on to be. The 
other thing that we started talking about was there are a lot of people who are curious about the internal versus external way that a company shows up, especially in talking about race. So when a lot of the, the protests started for the killing of George Floyd and overall in police brutality and racial injustice, some companies started making external statements. Some companies said, we are educating ourselves and we're planning on making an external statement. <laughs> some companies have uh, thus far said nothing. <laughs> so a friend of mine who is a, a VC firm, her company has said nothing externally. And part of it in a lot of different ways is has, having to do with fear. What if we lose our uh, a client base that we need? There's an element of time here. If we wait to say this until later or until after we get certain rounds of funding or whatever it is, then we'll have more freedom to do so. So at some point later in the future, maybe we'll do the something that we say that we care about now, but we just can't do it right now. It's just not the right time. And that is leading her to be very frustrated and so from an external perspective, maybe she feels like she can't move the needle. But from an internal perspective, there are ways in which she can talk to investors, in which she can think about uh, who are the people we are investing in? Are they people of color? She can start shifting a little bit of the mindset around, look at all the risks of making a statement and thinking about, okay, if, but we, if we don't make a statement, what does it say also? Again, bringing back to the, the benefits of making a statement, which sometimes don't get factored in. We only think of the costs. Or knowing that none of your competitors are making a statement, actually, that could be a competitive advantage. But how do we get people to see that way? So the internal-external debate, I think, is something I've been hearing and also thinking about a lot. I'm very proud about how the Walt Disney Company showed up externally in terms of uh, they put out a amazing video from our Black Employee Resource Group and people are sharing their experiences and it's just really powerful. It's emotional. At the end, there's a, there's a statement about uh, when we all got together and said Wakanda forever, like this is what it feels like being in community and together and being on board. I was super proud of that and proud of the way that we've also showed up internally and having safe space conversations and executives being champions of our employee resource groups. So there's like some, some tension though, sometimes between internal and external. And Nora, do you have an opinion on that? I have a couple thoughts. One is that I think almost if you do nothing, you're going to be swept up by the wave of the change in the world. You know, it's kind of like, let's switch the conversation. It's like COVID, right? You can't sit there and, and expect, well, we're just going to keep having classes and we're just going to keep doing things as normal and we'll be fine because it doesn't work that way. Well, racism is the same kind of disease. It's there. It's out there. It's infecting us all the time. And it's not just up to you as an internal employee. Recognize that there is a wave that is coming at your company, whether they like it or not, they're gonna to have to say or do something. There's really not a choice because there are repercussions. This, this is where the to do nothing is the bigger risk, I think. Okay. 
because they're going to get pushed by others and they're going to get outspoken for or outacted by a competitor or some of their customers are going to say, why didn't you do this? And it may not be the expected customers. You, you, you don't know. You just don't know. So I would say, you know, when I came to Haas, social impact was not a thing. It just wasn't. And I met with a former dean. His name was Bud Scheidt. Scheidt Hall. It's named after Bud, who was a dean at Haas. And when I came, I, I was hired by a former dean who told me that there were, there were faculty who were against anything in social impact. I said, really? Give me their names. Okay. So I list of like 20 faculty. Well, it's a lot out of 75. Mm. Wow. And I went about interviewing them to understand. My first instinct was to understand because I had never taught an MBA program. I thought, all right, let me find out. And one of the people I interviewed was Bud Scheidt. And he said to me, it doesn't matter what people are saying. Ride the wave of the student energy and you will never go wrong. There's always a wave. It's your customers. It's your other employees. It's the external world. It's your competitors. You are not alone. And so when you, you think about, can you do something for your organization? Remember, you're not the only one doing anything. There are lots of pressures and get attuned to them. That's one reason I taught the social movements class was to see and, and to provide a framework for what you were seeing. So you could see what was happening and what was working, but you're not alone. So, so don't make that mistake of thinking it's either me or it doesn't happen. Be careful of that. It's a trap. And the other thing is, you know, that, that again, that sense of agency, there's always something you can do. Think hard. Your MBAs, you're smart. You've been trained in strategy. Think hard. You know, is it the people you serve? Is it somebody in another department? Is it, is it some other way of looking at the way you deliver a product or a service? There's something there that you can do that can, can advance this conversation and even more than the conversation, the action. Look for it. It's there somewhere. Your job is to find it. I think that message of agency is, is so key because even for myself, I continuously educate myself, you know, student always, just kind of throw that out there. <laughs> but, you know, I remember that the week of George Floyd's murder, I was, uh, I did feel a little paralysis, right? And, and I, I just continued doing what I'm doing, which is interview people and host these podcasts and, uh, and get the stories out. But I started realizing, you know, there's something else I could do in the conversations that I have with my parents, in the conversations that I have with my family, with my close friends, and, and really catching things when you know, they're just blatantly wrong and correcting my own family, right? In, in certain beliefs that, you know, that I didn't even realize I had these biases before uh, and acknowledging that. And I think starting with that really made me feel empowered that I could have this conversation with other people, right? If you can't even have this conversation with yourself, with your family, how do you, you know, it is scary, right? So that was, that was a place where I started that uh, I just stumbled into it. Yeah. And I, I, I love that you started there in terms of, not leaving it to be that 
there's nothing I can do, right? You didn't stay in paralysis. There was still ways to take action. There's always ways to take some, some small action. And even if it is a conversation, even if it is listening to someone who you want to understand more, whatever it is, there's always ways to take an action and, and slowly move something. And I was just remembering, actually, last year, I was really, really fortunate um, to be nominated to be commencement speaker for my class. And I talked about power in my speech. That was what my whole speech was about. And I was thinking, I mean, if I think any short-term way, I'm like, oh, I really don't have that much power. I'm sitting in my house right now in my you know, cute little small room. I have a small an amazing family. I have a good group of friends, but like, where, where do I really have influence? And I wanted to write about power and very, very specific reason. And it is because I think very often I don't know how much effect my voice has. It's mm. very, it's like really hard to understand you without, especially people, you know, telling you later on or saying that one thing sparked this thing in me. It's hard to know. And people don't always do that. But over the course of my time at Haas, I started writing different articles. I sent out communication to people every week for things like food at Haas. (laughs) And so I knew people were reading it, even if they didn't respond. Hmm. And so I started thinking about that aspect of people reading it and knowing when events are and how to get there and things like that. And that just by sending it out, I don't know who, who will read it and who will take it and who won't. But it does have power. It changes people's behaviors. And that's such a simple behavior of like, now people's behavior has, has changed. I have to add to that. Your, your writing has a lot of power. When, when you shared that article that Haas posted right on your LinkedIn, I read it and it had a huge impact on me because it made me realize as an immigrant in this country, I can't remember the last time like I've had to ever think about my race, right? I don't walk around thinking, oh, I'm, I'm Asian, you know? I don't walk in a grocery store and think, I'm Asian. Or I don't have the cops pull me over and think, I'm Asian, you know? Like, I don't have to think about my race. And that's crazy. I'm an immigrant <laughs> in this country, right? And and it it further just propelled me down this path of thinking that, even in Asian culture, anti-blackness is so pervasive. It's so pervasive. We have these ideals that, you know, uh, white skin is beautiful. And it, it hit me like, like a truck. I was like, this is anti-blackness. My friends need to know this. And so I shared that. I reshared Bree's um, article. And then I added my commentary on top of, you know, what I just shared. And it was shocking that, you know, I, I think I looked at it last week or two weeks ago and 3,000 people have seen it, right? <laughs> and that's, that's crazy. That's, that's, I don't even think my LinkedIn network is that big. And, and people are reading it and people are liking it. And I think that's getting further shared. And, and even to have that type of impact in, in the Asian community to, to rethink about how we were brought up to rethink and reevaluate the unconscious biases that we hold. It, it's really important. So please continue sharing, Brie. Thanks, yeah. John. And for that 
the article that I shared, and again, it was from Haas, so I had to link back to basically Berkeley, but the article that I shared on LinkedIn, yeah, it, it had 25,000 views so far. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, who are these people? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, and it was like slowly, steadily going up and it, it was just weird because I, the way that I kind of put it out there is Haas had said, I wrote it last year, being black at Berkeley Haas. Haas said, uh, we're putting out voices again of students that we've heard who are black students amplifying voices. Do you mind if we share this again? I was like, oh yeah, sure. Sounds good. <laughs> um, I did write it and I was a little bit nervous again. I mean, in general, it, I, I put a lot of myself into that. So it, all of those feelings came back up, but I thought, you know, maybe it could be helpful for people. And so I said, sure, share it. And then I was like, oh, I never shared this. I honestly never shared it last year on LinkedIn. I don't know if I was nervous or I was building a school or <laughs> who knows what the reason. I don't remember but I didn't share it. And so I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just share it. And it felt so small to me. Like I knew people would read it. I knew people would react because that was already happening on LinkedIn with other people's articles. But I don't think I could have imagined the, the scale to which that would look like. And I mean, there are people writing to me all the time. of just like your article really impacted me. It really resonated with me. I go to a business school at a different place. I work at a completely different place. I've just you know, had this experience. I haven't had this experience and this resonated with me. And it was, it's pretty insane to have that kind of power and impact. And I think that probably everyone who is listening has that kind of power. It It is about kind of your, your networks in some ways, but also vulnerably and authentically bringing your voice to the conversation and, and how you do that. And when I was doing the commencement speech planning, I remember looking at other speeches a lot because I was like, oh, what are other commencement speeches like? I honestly, my undergrad one, I didn't love at all. It was like, it was like the CEO of Coca-Cola. He was talking about (laughs) buying more Coke and things. I was in Atlanta, so it made a lot of sense. But (laughs) it was like the whole time I was just thinking, what does this have to do with us? Like, this has nothing to do with us. And so I thought, I want to make my speech about us. That is what will resonate with people. Also, I'm so lucky. I have the ear of thousands of people from all over the world. 40% of our class is international. I mean, that is crazy. (laughs) And I represent 1% of my class as a Black woman. So having that kind of scale look at things of like, I could have this kind of impact of just being invited to speak on this stage. Now, how can I use this? And what, and what does that, that look like? I could use it to just talk about normal things that people talk about in commencements. We did it. We're here. You know? <laughs> or I could think about what people need to know and what people want to know about them themselves and their experiences. I mean, I had so many amazing experiences with my class. They're fantastic and thoughtful and incredible and have built so many incredible enterprises themselves and traveled together and loved each other and now are going into the world with so much power. (laughs) Like I have to talk about power. I have to talk about privilege. I have to talk about my privilege to just stand up here and say these words and for people to listen and have a rapt audience to listen. And I think even in very small conversations of anyone who trusts you, anyone who cares about you, whether it's your family members, like Sean was saying, whether it's, 
your friends, people who already love you. We have power in sharing who we are and sharing the things we care about and and sharing our opinions authentically. Again, not everyone will be on board with you. They won't all agree with you. They won't all listen. And you don't know what will happen next. You have no idea because there could be very good things that happen next. And even if people don't tell you, they're listening. Mm-hmm. You know, you reminded me of something. One, one item we haven't talked about that I'd like to bring up is about empathy. Hmm. And you reminded me of it because I also did my graduation speech for my doctorate. Amazing. And I thought long and hard. It's, it's a lot of pressure, right? I mean, you want to say something that's meaningful and real for you. And so I talked about interdependence and that the lesson I had to learn, this was a school of psychology, it's a PhD in psychology, was not to be so damn fiercely independent, which I can be, trust me, but to be more interdependent and that nobody gets to where we are on our own. And, and so that reminded me of the quality of empathy that mm-hmm. we bring to this. Because we're talking about how we speak up, and that is critical, and absolutely. There's another way to speak up, and that is to really hear other people's voices and to deeply understand them. And that's an action that we all can take. It may seem quiet, but it's critical. It's part of building those bridges, you know, and helping people understand how what they feel is not that different, you know, we know what hurt feels like. We know what exclusion feels like. The, the, it may be, look different at different times and certainly there's a difference in political power, but if we can help understand and connect those feelings person to person, that's a powerful way to build a movement too. Yeah. That's been the title of this episode. <laughs> Building bridges. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I love that, Nora. I think about empathy often and, and, and thinking about how others might might feel is important because we, we cannot live anyone else's perspective. We never will be able to, right? We can never mm-hmm. live someone else's perspective. But if we reject whatever they're feeling off the bat of saying, no way, that's not right. I've never experienced that. That's not true. Then we don't invite anything else. We don't invite any conversation, any curiosity, any questions, any bridge building. You you don't invite any way of of hearing each other ever again. It's kind of like closing that door. And it, it happens in, in a lot of directions, in all directions. <laughs> Even just with my little brother, if we were arguing about anything, you know, it's just, but you're dumb. I'm not going to listen anymore. Like, oh, you know, or, or even just saying, I'm going to agree to disagree. I feel like it's, it's fine, but only after you listen, <laughs> um, like, what are you disagreeing with? If you haven't heard what the, what the differences are, you actually could agree on the same thing, but just disagree on the ways to get there. And now we mm-hmm. have a conversation starter, which is how do we get there? And maybe you go that way and I go that way. And we actually both end up there together. But you will never know that if you um, simply dismiss each other's feelings or emotions or, or perspectives. Yeah. yeah. This is literally, I realize everything is a negotiation. And the core of negotiation is to understand the other side. 
<laughs> and, and, you know, it's not about getting what you want. It's about understanding the other side. Right. And that's something I think for this country at this moment in time is ever more important. Yeah. And especially, like Nora said, if you want to make that change, you, you, have, to, you have to understand what is, what is on the other side. Also, what's at stake. Also, what are people afraid of? What are the worries? Because if you don't know that, how are you going to, how are you going to continue? Or you might just be offering up things that don't help meet the goal. Yeah. Just what a pleasure, Brie. You know, you asked me. And I thought, I thought originally you asked me about using the financial lever in social movements. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. So I go over my notes and stuff. And then you say, oh, it's about change within a company, especially if you're a junior person. I'm like, oh, crap, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and I thought, okay, great. This is a chance for me to learn and to think about that. Because in class for large-scale social change, people kept asking me that question. I kept trying to say, no, this class is not about that. This class is not about that. And I'm so glad you brought this back to me to say, well, think about it, damn it. You know, you know it's time you thought about it. So thank you for that. My last question is, you know, what are some uh, resources? I know, Bree, you had mentioned the WhatsApp group. What are some resources that people can find? And we can definitely, I'm sure there are a lot of articles and things that we can link it in the episode as well. But anything that you want to just mention. I will, I will share the shared folder we have for the group. So the group, the WhatsApp group I've been talking about, we have a shared folder where we're doing, you know, different companies have different strategies and ways of thinking about things. And they've, we've been sharing what is externally we're able to share externally. So I'll share that in the notes. I think that the one resource that especially Hossies can think about is their, I mean, their classmates, talk to them, ask them about, you know, what are, what are you doing at work? How is this working for you? How, how are you having conversations with family, even whoever it is, and just reforming those communities around the issue of race is really, I think, something that's going to be beneficial for for all of us. And I would invite anyone to reach out to me if they'd like. And and hopefully we can make a broader community that's specifically focused on making change in the workplace. Wonderful. Well, this has been a true pleasure. I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast. And I, you know... Hope that we can continue this conversation as, as we learn more ourselves on how to make change happen. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the One Haas here at Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player and give us a rating or review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at onehaas.org, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, go Bears!